listening to the Bible 126 show. Chapter 18, verse 1. Uh, and the Lord said unto Aaron, Thou and thy sons and thy father's house with thee shall bear the iniquity of the sanctuary. Thou and thy sons with thee shall bear the iniquity of your priesthood. And thy brethren also of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of thy father. Bring thou unto thee, that they may be joined unto thee, and minister unto thee. But thou and thy sons with thee shall minister before the tabernacle of witness. An incidental point here, by the way, there's a play on words here, uh, Levites and to join, uh, because the word uh, Levi and the word join are almost the same word in the Hebrew. It's just a, a, a different vocalization, so there's a little play on words, but that's incidental. What we're going to find in this chapter, by the way, we're not going to get into all the details of the priesthood per se. We'll just go through the chapter. But the one thing we should be alerted to is, while we go through the duties of the priests, they're not without hazard. They're, we're going to see them cautioned not to be casual about uh, handling the things of the Lord. And uh, on the one hand, we don't apply this in detail to ourselves, and yet there are lessons here, that there are risks and dangers in, uh, in casualness with the things that are of God. So we'll keep moving. Verse 3. And they shall keep thy charge in the charge of all the tabernacle. Only they shall not come near the vessels of the sanctuary and the altar, that neither they nor ye also die. Misuse here was uh, under penalty of death. In some occasions it was supernaturally invoked by God himself. In other occasions it was just to be enforced as a commandment. But nevertheless, uh, God, the main thing we learn here, God uh, takes himself very seriously. God takes the things that are set aside, that is sanctified unto his use, very seriously. And we need to learn that. Verse 4, And they shall be joined unto thee, and keep charge of the tabernacle of the congregation for all the service of the tabernacle. And a stranger shall not come near unto you. And you shall keep the charge of the sanctuary and the charge of the altar, that there be no wrath any more upon the children of Israel. And I, behold, I have taken your brethren, the Levites, from among the children of Israel. To you they are given as a gift for the Lord to do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now bear in mind the distinction between the priests and the Levites. They were all of the tribe of Levi, but if they were the family of Moses and Aaron, they were the priests. The priests were, priesthood was hereditary. So if you were in the family of Aaron, you were still a Levite, but you were a priest, very special. So if you did a Venn diagram, if you will, you've got a small circle called priests, a larger circle embracing it called Levites. If you, if you were a Levite, you might not be a priest. But if you were of the family of Moses and Aaron, then you were not only of the tribe of Levi, you were a priest. That's where there's, there's the distinction. And the Levites were given to the priests to serve. The nation Israel tithed, tithed to the Levites, and then the priests... The Levites tithed to the priests. That was the e economy, and we're going to see that. It's going to get into all that here shortly, and and we'll just uh, we'll we'll I, we'll just take it with a light uh, a light touch because I'm not. It would it's not the intent of the study to get into the Levitical instruction and in the kind of detail it takes to really extract the subtleties of it. So we'll just keep moving, and there's other more fruitful material as we go forward. So we'll just keep moving here. Where was I? Was a peri uh, per uh, verse six, seven, verse six. Uh, yes, okay. Verse seven. Therefore, thou and thy sons with thee shall keep your priest's office for everything of the altar and within the veil, and ye shall serve. I have 
given your priest's office unto you as a service of gift, and the stranger that cometh near shall be put to death. And the Lord spoke unto Aaron, Behold, I also have given thee the charge of mine heave offerings of all the hallowed things of the children of Israel. Unto thee have I given them by reason of the anointing, and to thy sons by an ordinance forever. This shall be thine of this shall be thine of the most holy things, reserved from the fire. Every oblation of theirs, every meal offering of theirs, every sin offering of theirs, every trespassing, uh, trespass offering of theirs, which they shall render unto me, shall be most holy for thee and for thy sons. Some of the offerings were totally consumed, burned. Others were not, only partially. That which was left or given was for the use of the, of the priests. Verse 10. In the most holy place shalt thou eat it, when he says the most holy place, don't confuse that with the Holy of Holies. It's easily done in the language. You understand that the, the tabernacle itself was, um, if you think of three cubes, 15 foot on a side, there's a room, two of those large. In other words, roughly 30 foot long, 15 foot wide, and 15 foot high, roughly. And that was the holy place, sometimes called the most holy place, but don't be confused. There's an inner sanctum, if you will, the third cube, if you will, you can enter through the holy place, called the Holy of Holies, perfectly square. And that was where the ark and you know, these special things were. And that was entered only once a year by the high priest, and then only with great ceremonial cleansings and so forth. When they say the most holy place, they mean the holy place. That is the place where the priests officiated, which was in the, the first room, the larger room, the so-called uh, holy place. And that's uh, misleading. A lot of these, gee, the most holy place... That conflicts with all these other rules. No, no, it's not talking about the Holy of Holies. It's talking about the place where the table of showbread, where the twelve loaves were, and the and the menorah, that the, the uh, seven branch candlestick. Okay. Then the most holy place shalt thou eat it. Every male shall eat it. It shall be holy unto thee. Sorry, girls, this was men only. Right. Um, and this is thine. The heave offering of their gift and all the wave offerings of the children of Israel I have given unto thee and to thy sons and to thy daughters with thee by a statute for every everyone that is clean in thy house shall eat of it. All the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the wheat and the first fruits of them which uh, they ha- uh, shall offer to the Lord, them I, I have given thee. And whatsoever is first ripe in the land, which they shall bring unto the Lord, shall be thine. Everyone that is clean in thine house shall eat it. Every, and by clean here they mean ceremonially clean. Okay, we're not talking hygiene here. We're talking Levitical uh, procedure. Uh, verse fourteen: Everything be devoted in Israel shall be thine. Everything that openeth the womb in all flesh, which they bring unto the Lord, whether it be of men or of beasts, or shall be thine. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man shalt thou surely redeem, and the firstling of the unclean beasts shalt thou redeem. And those that are to be redeemed from a month old shalt thou redeem according to thy Valuation for the money of five shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 giras. Now bear in mind this redemption of the firstborn. The firstborn was in a very, very special category. We've studied firstborn enough that I don't think we need to um, belabor that. It's basically a gratitude gift because they were redeemed from the death of the firstborn in, in, in uh, Egypt. Now the firstborn son was to be... not was of the Lord, but redeemed with dollars, cash. Except here we're talking shekels and a special shekel of the sanctuary. Later on in the economy, they develop a a secular currency separate from the temple currency, and it's that exchange that had to take place in the temple where we get the money changers. 
nothing wrong with money changers. They were just being abusive in the exchange rates. But the idea was all the temple affairs were done in the temple coin as opposed to the coin of the realm, the, the profane uh, money. So when it says five shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, that's a special coin uh, that they used. But the firstling of the cow or the firstling of the sheep or the firstling of a goat, thou shalt not redeem, they are holy. Thou shalt sprinkle their blood upon the altar and shalt burn their fat for an offering made by fire for a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the flesh of them that shall be thine, the wave breasts as the right shoulder are thine. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer unto the Lord have I given thee and thy sons and thy daughters with thee by a statute forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord unto thee and to thy seed with thee. I can't pass over this remark without a little bit of background. The covenant of salt. Strange expression, isn't it? Salt was a very, very prized commodity in the ancient world for lots of reasons. Um, It had two primary characteristics. One is it would induce flavor on things that were otherwise insipid. We all experienced that. It also had the property of preserving in a time where you did not, have, did not have refrigeration or efficient distribution channels of food, preservation of food was a big issue, and salt was one of the common ways of doing that. So salt was a prized commodity. But there was also a tradition that goes way, way back. The Bedouins still practice it today, that if you eat bread and salt together in the, under the tent of a host, that becomes a binding pledge. You are, first of all, uh, accorded security, even though he might be your blood enemy. If you're received in his tent and eat blood, uh, uh, bread and salt together, you are under his protection. It can also serve in certain contexts as a pledge for fidelity, even to death. The concept of salt and bread together carries the concept of a covenant. Okay. Now, salt was also used as a currency, as a form of payment. We even use that expression today. Have you ever heard someone, a workman worth his salt? You ever wondered where that came from? See, it comes back thousands of years ago. These expressions uh, uh, occur. So um, you'll also notice, though, that that concept of salt is included in all the offerings. If we were doing a study of the Levitical system and all, and by the way, the lists and details and numbers sometimes have slight variations from that in Leviticus, and there's all kinds of insights if you really want to dig into that, but it gets highly technical and laborious, so I decided to skip all that. But you will notice, among other things, that salt is always included in all the offerings before the Lord. Salt's always included. Partly it's a, it's a, it's a form of honoring it. It's a form of making it perfect. But it also should remind us of something that he said to us. Ye are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its savor, wherein will the earth be salted? Huh? So we could from this get into a whole trip on are you... Have you lost your savor? That's up to you. I'll let you run with that one. We'll we'll keep moving on. Um, okay, so we could make a big study of salt. I'll leave that up to you. Um, those who want the Levitical offerings, Leviticus two thirteen, and also Mark nine forty nine makes reference to the salt in the offerings and so on. Um, but we're at verse twenty. And the Lord spoke unto Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt Thou have any part among them. Bear in mind now, Aaron and all the Levites had no inheritance. When they go into the land later on, when they do enter Canaan and they divide the land by tribe, the tribe of Levi, the land is divided in 12 parts, not counting Levi. 
So in other words, Joseph is Ephraim and Manasseh. It's, and I won't get into that right now. But the point is, all the tribes, you'll find maps in your Bible which has the area by tribal name. The, the, the term of a tribe and the geography are synonyms. There is an area called Judah. Even today, if you drive, especially after dark, there's these signs. They're not responsible for your safety. It's right if you, it's, it's, it's Judea and Samaria and so forth. Judea is a geographical area. It's also a tribal name. Dan is an area up north, um, and so on. But Levites, there's no area called Levites. The Levites did not inherit land. They did get some cities of refuge. They have a relationship with certain cities, but that's a different thing. They did not inherit land, so they did not have a source of economy. What was their economy? The tithe of the nation. You see? And here in verse 20, it says, The Lord spoke unto me, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them. I am thy part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. You can hear the Levites saying, yeah, great, how do we spend that, Lord? You know, you know. see, I mean, you can see the cynic. You know, you can see how they say, that sounds great, but what's in it for, I mean, how do we pay our bills? Well, that, that, that's coming. Verse 21, and behold, I have given the children of Levi all the tenth in the Israel for an inheritance, for their service, which they serve, even the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Neither must the children of Israel henceforth come near the tabernacle of the congregation, lest they bear sin and die. In other words, that's what the Levites are supposed to do. But the Levites shall do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they have no inheritance. But the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer as a heave offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites to inherit. Therefore I have said unto them, Among the children of Israel they shall have no inheritance. And the Lord spoke unto the Moses, saying, Thus speak unto the Levites, and say unto them, When ye take of the children of Israel the tithes, which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then ye shall offer up an heave offering for, of it to the Lord, even a tenth part of the tithe. And this your heave offering shall be reckoned unto you as though it were the grain of the threshing floor and the fullness of the winepress. Thus ye shall also offer and he offering to the Lord of all your tithes, which ye receive of the children of Israel, and ye shall give thereof the Lord's heave offering to Aaron the priest. In other words, the nation tithes to the Levites, the Levites tithe to the priests. That's to simplify it, but you get the picture. Out of all your gifts ye shall offer every heave offering to the Lord. Of all the rest of it, even the hallowed part there. The heave offering may sound strange. It's not that they're throwing it. They're holding it up, and then it's still usable. See, they're not burning it. It's not a burnt offering. You see what I'm getting at? It's, it's held up, thus dedicated, okay, and then, but then provided for the Levites and then in turn the priests. I used to wonder what the heave offering, you know? <laughs> and uh, There's a lot more to it than that. I'm being a little glib, but to get, so you get the, 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 the operational thing to recognize the heave offering isn't consumed by fire like a burnt offering. It's still an offering before the Lord, but it's it's a it's a it's a substance that has, you know, practic, practical use to the Levites and priests subsequently. Okay, and uh, and when you eat of it in every place in your households, for it is a reward for your service, the tabernacle of the congregation, and ye shall bear no sin by reason of it when ye have lifted it up from the rest of it. Neither shall ye pollute the holy things of the children of Israel, lest ye die. Okay. Um, uh, one of the things you may wonder from time to time, well, there's a lot you can learn from getting into the details. And I, sometime, if you're led to it, I do encourage you to get references and dig into the Levitical system in detail. Uh, there, there, there's much benefit there. But the main thing for us at this level just to recognize is God is very express in detail. It's how he's to be worshipped, how, how the offerings, you, 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 it, almost to a, 
tedious point of tediousness go through the uh, the Torah and very here in Leviticus and elsewhere to learn about all these things. It's clear that God is very expressive, very detailed. He is. Uh, there's no room for arbitrariness in how we worship God. He has specified, even to us in the New Testament period, uh, how he's to be worshipped. And uh, the other thing you can also recognize is also to prevent arbitrariness on the part of the priests and the Levites to the nation Israel. The coin has two sides. That's what they're entitled to, but also no more, you see. So he's laying down a system that's to endure uh, in the nation. Now we get to chapter 19. We get a very strange circumstance going here. And the more you know about offerings, the more peculiar this is. You know, we, we've all studied the Passover. And we all know about the Passover, Passover in Egypt, the, the historical event. We also know the institution of the Passover. The more you learn about the Passover, though, the more you learn about offerings, the more bizarre the Passover is. See, the Passover is not a Levitical offering. Levitical offerings are done by the priest. Passover is not. It's done by the household. Right? And you can go on and on. There's all kinds of details. The more you study it, the more you realize Passover is different. Well, there's another one of those that, as we read it at first, as we go through chapter 19, there's this business of the red heifer. And the more you read it, it sounds like just another one of these Levitical institutions that God has his purposes behind. The more you study it, though, the more you realize it's different. It's strange. And that whenever that happens, that should put a flag up. That should alert you that there's something going on here. And let's, uh, let's t- take a look at it. Um, one other thing before we get into this, we've had a, we, we have had and will have more a lot of discussion about death. We had last time we talked about when, when, when someone touches a dead bone, they're ceremonially unclean, they have to go outside the camp for seven days and all this business, right? We're going to discover there's a tremendous preoccupation with death, especially in this part of the, the scriptures. And the reason, well, there's a couple of operative reasons. First of all, this generation is in the wanderings. They have been condemned to death. Don't get into the land until you guys are all dead. Hey, gang, I know you've been promised you're going to go to the land, but no, no, your kids will. You won't. Until you die off, we're going to wander here in the wilderness. Great message. I mean, that's tough, right? Um, let's do a little arithmetic. There's 600,000 of them, right? And that's just the males. You're going to roll those over. And if you do, you take your 38 years times 365, you quickly come up. That's about 43 per day. Men. Men. So the nation of Israel was approaching 100 per day average, you know, a group that size, right? So now there's a lot of death around. You know, they're dealing with this, right? But people have to deal with it, so therefore they're ceremonial and clean. This whole idea of death hangs over the camp, especially during these 38 years. Not that they're dying any more then, but still, it's the theme. It's the issue. It's tough. That's the reason is that sin and death are connected. What causes death? Sin. Now, someone doesn't die because he's specifically a sinner, and yet he is. I mean, we're all victims of or, or subject to that disease, disease called death. And what God is instructing here is that death and sin are utterly obnoxious to him. The idea of something holy, something death, is separated. It happens outside the camp. You don't bury in the camp. Now, a lot of books are written about the hygiene of that, because the Egyptians had their strange practices where they'd mummify and live in the house. And uh, a lot of the ancient cultures had bizarre practices about the dead. And some 
commentators appropriately point out that there's an enormous hygiene involved here, but that's not the issue. That may be part of it. It's far deeper than that, and that is that there's just no, there is no um, room for death and sin in the, in the city of God. And death and sin are inexorably linked here and, of course, in 1 Corinthians 15 elsewhere. We'll get into that a little later. So um, now, with that in mind, we have this strange institution of the red heifer in chapter 19. Chapter 19, numbers uh, 19, verse 1, The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, and unto Aaron, interesting, to Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they may bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came a yoke. Well, the fact that it's without blemish and unyoked and never been applied to profane service, that's no surprise. The fact that it's perfect. And by the way, the Levitical interpretation of this was if they found two hairs that were either white or black, it's not red heifer anymore. They get you know, how typical Levitical approach, they really split hairs, if you'll excuse the expression. But why red? A red heifer, and it's the only place that I know of where the color of the offering if I can call this an offering, which I think again, is specified. But going on, verse 3. It says, And ye shall give it to Eleazar the priest. Now, Eleazar wasn't the priest yet. He's going to get instituted a little bit because Aaron's going to die. And just like Moses, in the sense that Aaron's sent up on the mountain with Eleazar and the mantle is put on Eleazar and Aaron dies up there. And then Eleazar is the high priest. But that's not here. He's here not in the role of the high priest. He's a priest, yes, but not the high priest. Aaron's the high priest. So, Aaron's not going to get his hands dirty on this deal. Eliezer's going to do it. Okay. Um, you shall give it to Eliezer the priest that he may bring it out, uh, bring it forth outside the camp. This is not on the altar. This is not in the tabernacle, on the brazen altar. This is outside, not only the tabernacle, outside the camp of Israel. And one shall slay it before his face. And Eliezer the priest shall take of its blood with his finger and sprinkle of its blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. And one shall burn the heifer in his sight, its skin, its flesh, and its blood, and its dung, and he shall burn. Now the blood, this is unique, by the way, because usually the blood isn't burned. It's given to the Lord. Here it's burned for a reason. And the priest shall take cedar wood, hyssop, and scarlet and cast it into the midst of the burning of the heifer. And the priest shall wash his clothes and shall bathe his flesh in water. And afterward he shall come into the camp and the priest shall be unclean until the evening. It's because he's touched dead things, you see. This is the priest, not the high priest. The priest that is doing the execution here. I, I mean, a, a, not execution, but providing the procedure, in other words. <clears throat> and he that burneth it shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his flesh in water and shall be unclean until the evening. And and a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and lay them up outside the camp for a, in a clean place, and it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for a water of separation. It is a purification for sin. Now, this idea of the ashes may sound strange to you, but you see, the blood was burned and thus becomes identified with the ashes, and the ashes are preserved and saved. We're going to see that they're going to be mixed with water and used ceremonially, as a cleansing agent. Now, this is an event that did not occur very often. Other events occurred once a year or whenever. There probably, the uh, scholars believe there's only been six red heifers in the history of Judaism. 
because you don't need to do it very often because you do it once and you've got the ashes and the ashes are used ceremony with some water to be a uh, an agent we'll see shortly see so that's the reason so the ashes are a way of making it uh, institute okay now we were down to verse 10 and he who gathereth the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening and then it shall be uh, unto the children of Israel and unto the stranger that sojourneth among them as a statu- for a statute forever this is forever this isn't just during the wilderness wanderings. It's not just during the conquest of Canaan. It's forever. He who toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with it on the third day and on the seventh day. He shall be clean. But if he purify not himself the third day, then the seventh day he shall not be clean. Whosoever toucheth the dead body of any man who is dead and purifieth not himself, defileth the tabernacle of the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from Israel, because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him, and he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is yet upon him. This is the law. When a man dieth in a tent, all who come into the tent, and all that is in the tent, shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which has no covering bound upon it is unclean. And whosoever toucheth one who is slain with the sword in the open fields, or a, or a dead body, or a bone of a man, or a grave, shall be unclean clean seven days and for an unclean person they shall take of the ashes of the burnt heifer of purification for sin and running water shall be put thereinto in a vessel running water sometimes translated fresh water okay we'll come back to that and a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent and upon all the vessels and upon the persons who were there and upon him that toucheth a bone, or one slain, or one dead, or a grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself and wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and shall be clean at evening. But the man who shall be unclean shall not purify himself. That soul shall be cut off from among the congregation because he hath defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of separation hath not been sprinkled upon him. He is unclean. And it shall be a perpetual statute unto them. He who sprinkleth the water of separation shall wash his clothes. And he who toucheth the water of separation shall be unclean until evening. Whatsoever the unclean person toucheth shall be unclean. And the soul that toucheth it shall be unclean till evening. Period. Wow. More technical Levitical stuff. What on earth does this mean? Here is a secret that you might tuck away. Anytime you encounter a passage in the Bible that makes no sense to you whatsoever, you put Jesus Christ right in the middle of it and see what happens. Okay? Let's talk a little bit about this. This is the best of its sort, right? Why a red heifer? There were, how many of you know, about, you know what the Red Cross is, right? How many of you know what the Jewish version of the Red Cross is? The Magen David Adom, Right? Magen David is the shield of David, right? Adom means red. Good. Where did Adam get its name? Red. So the red in the Hebrew is a link to the name of Adam. The first Adam and the last Adam. Okay? This is Adam's stand-in here. Right? Okay. Where is it put to death? Outside the camp. Not on the altar, not in the tabernacle, not in the house of God. Outside the camp. Where was Jesus Christ crucified? 
outside the camp. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's getting interesting. Okay. Incidentally, this is described in the wilderness context. When they moved to Jerusalem and they had the temple, this was done on the Mount of Olives. It's by tradition, by Judaistic tradition. And the blood was burned. I covered that. Okay. Um, We have here what's presented is a remedy for what? Death. Right, which is the alter ego of sin. You don't cure death, you cure sin. You conquer sin, you've conquered death. Who conquered death? Jesus Christ. You have to go into 1 Corinthians or Revelation to point that out to this audience. You're way ahead of me. Now, the whole, the real remedy of, for sin isn't the slaughter of a red heifer. This is typology at work. The real remedy for sin was the death of Jesus Christ, whose incorruptibility makes us incorruptible in him, right? So this whole thing is a type or model of the atonement. The whole idea of needing an atonement is expressed. See, bear in mind all the instruction here. What do you need a red heifer for? Well, you've got to get that because you're unclean. You get clean how? By being sprinkled. Three, three days and seven days, right? Three days and then seven? Interesting. The, the seven feasts of Moses, three of them occur in the first month. Passover, 10th of Nisan, which is coterminous with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which goes seven days. Okay? And the Feast of first fruits, which occurs when? On the morning after the Sabbath after Passover which on one particular occasion in history was three days. Which three days? The day when he, when the first fruits was being observed was when a group of people, that when the smoke of the first fruits offering from the temple was arising to the sky, that morning a group of people were investigating an empty tomb. So when was he sprinkled? The third day in terms of raising the dead or when the Feast of Unleavened Bread was finished, which is seven days after Passover. Interesting, interesting how God works in patterns. Now, it's also interesting here <clears throat> that this was not given at Sinai. We're not dealing with a law here in a narrow sense. It's broader. It's in the wilderness wanderings. It's also interesting that there's only one victim. This isn't a lamb that you offer every month or every year. This is conceptually instituted as a once, once and for all situation. If you want you have the red heifer and you have the ashes, how long will the ashes last you? long time. So it's a... In, Conceptually here, it's procedurally like one, one, uh, one victim. It's interesting that's a heifer, that's a female. Why a female? Because it's the seed of the woman that's being pointed to. Okay? The red and Adam we've talked about, it's without blemish, just like the Passover lamb without blemish. It's outside the camp, that is, it dies in an unhallowed place. It's also interesting that the heifer is led to the high priest... And he sees to it that it's done, but his hands don't get dirty. Jesus Christ was led to Caiaphas that night. Huh? But he passed it on, right? Others took care of it. It doesn't look like a sacrifice in the classical Levitical sense, but of course it is. And it becomes clear, when the, even though it's slaughtered outside the camp, when the blood is sprinkled toward, seven times towards the sanctuary, the sacrificial substitutionary element of the heifer is there pointed in. And uh, Now the ashes, which in effect 
are the permanent residue of the blood, if you will. The ashes are mixed with fresh water. We would say living water. Same translation. Okay. And we come here, and we go to Leviticus 14 and talk more about fresh water and all that sort of thing. Um, there's so much to God. I want to get too distracted here. Um, you might turn with me to Hebrews. Can't miss Hebrews 9. One of the most interesting commentaries on the Old Testament is none other than the book of Hebrews. To really tie this all together for you, and Hebrews 9 is a terrific one, specifically, for lots of reasons. But we'll just pick it up about Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and, uh, and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this cause he is the mediator of a new testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, who were, uh, they who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And then he goes on. And, of course, we could take the whole chapter 9 or the whole book of Hebrews to elaborate, but that gives you the specific pointing of Christ to the red heifer. So this isn't some fabrication or just a curious parallelism. It's intentional by the Holy Spirit himself, uh, as, as suggested there. And there's many other passages, and I'll let you, if you're so led, to chase those down. Washing of the ashes. with Now, uh, before we leave the red heifer, let me mention a few other things. We know prophetically that the Antichrist will erect a, a um, idol, a, an abomination, in the holy place. And that's why it's called the abomination of desolate. The abomination makes, maketh desolate. It's the ultimate abomination one can do. In order to desolate a holy place, it has to be consecrated. You can't desolate, desolate something that isn't consecrated. So we know prophetically that there will be a temple with a holy of holies that is consecrated. Can't do that today. There's no temple today. The things called temples that are really synagogues. There isn't, in fact, there's even construction of a great synagogue in Jerusalem. That's not a temple. There needs to be a temple. Prophetically, we know that there is a temple. It turns out, to have a temple, it's got to be consecrated. What is it that you need to consecrate, consecrate the temple with? Ashes of the red heifer, right. And one of the big curious searches going on is to find the claw that contains the ashes of the last heifer slain. And there are people when we were there last there's a there's good reason to believe we know where it is to discuss this in any detail puts lives at risk. So let me just say this is that and by the way it's not in Jordan (laughs) with all due respect a certain 
Indiana Jones or whoever else. Um, um, but the point is, is that just as there are searches for the Ark of the Covenant, and they have their, that's, that's a trip you can get on, there's also quite serious uh, pursuits of the ashes of the red heifer. And uh, it's generally viewed that it will be, uh, it'll emerge uh, into, the, into the public limelight in a time prior to the need for it, which will be to cleanse the temple, to sanctify it, to reestablish temple worship, which will, of course, be violated as a result of the breaking of a treaty that uh, Daniel and others talk so much about. So you will hear about the red heifer um, uh, from time to time in, in a prophetic sense. So I rather I, I don't want to spend any more time on that um, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which it would put people at risk. Okay, let's move on to chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then came the children of Israel, uh, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. So Miriam, uh, who we encountered recently, has now passed away. Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, all three of them, are going to be uh, deprived, in a sense, of their fruits of labor for 40 years. Because they've wandered through the 40 years, they're going to die off prior to the entry, entry into, the, into the land. Verse 2, And there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Now, before we get into this any further, I want to clear up something. Some, of, some study Bibles and some commentators believe that there are two descriptions of the same event wrong. We're at Mirabah here. The other event takes at Rephidim. To get this in perspective, let's pause here and refresh our memories from our discussion or study in the book of Exodus. Turn to Exodus 17. This will have much more meaning if you have in perspective an earlier account. Now, this earlier account means it was the prior generation. You see, bear in mind, we're trying to turn over a whole generation in the wilderness, and in numbers at the place we are, it's near the end of that wanderings. But earlier, in, in, in um, Exodus 17, verse 1, And all the congregation of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of Sin. Different place. It's easily confused. Sin and Sin are not the same deserts. You would think that's just a transliteration problem. No, they're different geography. After the journeys, according to the command... And by the way, a lot of good scholars are confused about this, so don't be surprised if you encounter some of this in your things. But the, the wilderness of Sin and Sin are two different spots, not the same. After their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and encamped at Rephidim, a different place. And there was no water for the people to drink. Wherefore the people did strive with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why strive ye with me? Wherefore do ye put the Lord to the test? And the people thirsted here for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Why hast thou brought us up out of Egypt to kill us with our children and our cattle with thirst? You know, we can, uh, I have the same feeling, you know, sort of, these, these are the frustrating people. And yet, let's be fair. This is not just a group of campers. <laughs> you know, you've got one, two, three million, pick a number, people out there with cattle and livestock. The absence of water is a heavy issue. So, you know, it's one thing for us with our 2020 hindsight to say, you know, what's with these people? In practical terms, this is tough. They're thirsty. There's no water. They're out in the sticks. 
And uh, so it's a problem. It's a serious problem. Now, admittedly, there's a lack of faith involved. We're getting at that. But in fairness, to get the perspective here, um, there but for the grace of God go you or I, huh? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said unto Moses, Go ye before the, uh, go on before the people, and take with thee the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river. And, and Remember he, when they went through the Red Sea and all that. Take in thine hand and go. Behold, I will stand before thee there upon the rock at Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel and called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the striving, of, the word Meribah means striving, uh, of the children of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Then came Amalek and they fought in Rephidim. That's a whole other part of the story. Okay, this happened. They needed water. Moses, on instruction of the Lord, smote the rock with his rod. Then water came out, and they were fed. Miracle. Documented in Exodus 17. Don't confuse that now with Numbers 20. Very similar and yet different. Exodus 17, Moses did okay, right? The water, hey, strike the rock. He did. Water came. People drank. Score one. Okay, we're now in Numbers 20. Verse 2, there was no water for the congregation. They gathered themselves together against Moses, against Aaron. And the people strove with Moses and spoke, saying, Would God that we had died when the brethren died before the Lord. And why, and why have ye brought up the congregation of the Lord unto this wilderness, that, that we and our cattle should die here? And wherefore have ye made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or figs or vines or pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. The Lord said unto Moses, let's pay attention exactly what the Lord says to Moses. It turns out, we learn again and again and again, you've got to read the fine print. <laughs> pay attention. He's God talking. Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye. I underlined in my Bible the word speak. Speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth its water, and shall bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. Seems straightforward enough. God's got his people there. They're thirsty. They need water. Their plea, while it may be expressed poorly, is valid. So the Lord is not going to withhold water from them. Even when Moses blows this, as you'll see shortly, he still doesn't withhold the water from them. The Lord provides for his children. But notice now, Moses, in verse 9, Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded them, and Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, now, we know from Psalm 106 and other places that Moses lost his temper here. So that's part of what's going on. By the way, there's volumes written on what was... You know, Moses blows it, and he really gets... Penal, he gets in the penalty box for having blown this. There's volumes written just exactly what was it that Moses did wrong. We're going to study that a little bit. Because most of the commentators, I think, missed the point. But anyway, first of all, he did lose his temper. Moses said, Hear ye now, ye rebels... 
Well, I guess they were rebels, but that wasn't what the God, God wasn't, his instruction wasn't to chastise them. It was to feed them, you know, speak to the rock, give them water. Hear ye now, rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Who? Aaron and Moses? Is that your job description, Moses, to to get water out of rocks? Who's taking credit? God is very jealous of his credit. In faith healing others in all kinds of places. When you, and by the way, that's one of the signs of the end times. You're going to see miracles. The question is not the miracles. Who gets the credit? That tells you what the source is. But anyway, here now, you rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Now, verse 11. Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod, he smote the rock twice. So he's upset. He's frustrated the people. In his mind, he's doing what the Lord said. is get water out of the rock, right? That's the way he did it last time. Maybe 20, 30 years ago, whenever it was, he smote the rock with the rod. That's what he did last time. The Lord didn't say do that this time. He didn't follow directions. And I, I submit to you, that's his big mistake. It isn't just his attitude. Because you're going to see the Lord really penalized. Because of this incident, Moses' ministry is over. Because of this, here's a guy who spent 40 years in Midian before he was even ready to be called in preparation. And is called and, 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 and faithfully delivers, or is the deliverer that God uses to, to, to give birth to the nation by extracting these slaves into, out of Egypt and, and, and organize them into a nation in the, in the wilderness. And for 40 years he puts up with these people trying to be the leader. And this incident ends his ministry. So it's a little incident. You say, gee, he didn't do it right. The Lord doesn't slap him on the wrist. He says, hey, don't do that again. He says, hey, Moses, it's over. You'll see him. Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and there be salt. And the Lord spoke unto Moses Aaron. Verse 12, the heavy verse. Because ye believed me not, to sanctify me in the eyes of... No, Wait a minute now. Moses believed God. He didn't think he was just going to hit a rock and water's going to come out because that's natural. That's some new physical law or there's some cleft in the rock that's just sort of been damned. That isn't the issue here. There is faith involved in Moses' actions despite the fact he did it inappropriately. When God says, you believe me not, he says, follow my directions precisely. And before we get too critical of Moses, how many of us follow the Lord's directions carefully. Scary. Really scary. Because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation in the land which I have given them. Simple statement. Moses, it's over. Because you did not present me to them the way I had intended. You're not going to enter the promised land. I'll let you see it from a mountain afar off, but you're going to die before we go into the land with the congregation. Joshua will take over, and that's the program. Heavy stuff. Now, I don't believe Moses' ministry is over. It is over for now. There's a staff meeting on the Mount Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah and the Lord talk about the end times. In Revelation chapter 11, we see two characters who I personally believe, for a lot of reasons, are Moses and Elijah. Both of their ministries were interrupted. Both of their ministries are not yet complete. 
It will be complete for a lot of reasons. And if you're interested in that area, get the tape on Revelation 11 or Matthew 17 where we get into all of that. This is the water of Meribah, which means strife. Because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. Now, tough stuff. A lot of lessons here. Despite the error of the leader, God did not withhold the blessing from the people. See, God is really upset with Moses, obviously. He wouldn't invoke that kind of disappointment to his servant Moses. Casually. God is upset with Moses. But that did not interfere with his ability to feed the people. Now, how grateful we should be for that. A minister or a teacher does not have to be perfect for God to use him to communicate to you. That's my only excuse, gang. (laughs) Now, but the fact that Moses took credit, I think, is a mistake. The fact that Moses lost his temper is a mistake. The fact that Moses did not present himself, or present God to them faithfully. See, he gave the people reason to believe God was angry with them. God didn't say he was angry with the people. Right? He said, you know, speak to the rock, give him the water. And Mo- Moses was angry. But gee, there's other places in the scripture where Moses was angry in a self-righteous on behalf of the Lord. And one could argue, maybe a little extended, that Moses' anger was in, could be in part be sanctified, except we know from the text here, from context, it obviously was not. There's something else going on I'm going to suggest to you. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. Very important chapter to know anyway, so we'll use this as an excuse to just poke at 1 Corinthians 10 a little bit. First Corinthians, Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual food, and did all eat, uh, did all uh, drink the same spiritual drink. So he's making a theological point here, but then he makes an interesting mark. And they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. They drank of a rock? Yes, twice. And who was that rock? Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, speaking typologically, speaking idiomatically, see, okay, I'm not saying that that physical rock was physically Jesus Christ before his incarnation. Don't miss it. Don't, don't, don't take this to... And yet, the rock was a type of Christ, right? How many times was Christ smitten for you and I? Once. I believe God's intention was to have the experience in the wilderness symbolically, typologically foreshadow the person of Jesus Christ. And by Moses smiting the rock the second, the two times later, blew the type. You see? Now Moses would have no insight of that, but that's why God's frustrated. Because he didn't do what God told him to do. Speak to the rock, and they'd be get the living water, right? And that way, if we studied it, there's a first and second coming issue involved. There's a typology involved, and you could go on and on, except it's blown because Moses didn't follow directions. Abraham, when he's told to offer his son Isaac, followed directions. Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. And the details of Genesis 22 are flabbergasting in terms of how God can use that as a model, a type, for our instruction. 
He can't use this here because Moses blew it. That's why I think there's more at stake here than just the fact that Moses lost his temper or just the fact that he wasn't a faithful witness in the sense that he let them think God was angry when he wasn't. Those are valid issues. Don't misunderstand me. I think there's another issue. And that is that the, 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 the model, the type, the, the prophetic implications of what could be made of this story were, were destroyed by Moses' uh, uh, you know, um, uh, failure to follow directions precisely. Well, we're on a roll. We'll keep moving. Chapter 20, verse 14. And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Now, you remember Edom. Edom means red. Descendants of Esau, right? And you remember Jacob and Esau. And you remember the business of the porridge. Esau was technically born first, but forfeited his birthright. It wasn't just that he sold the porridge, but he just disdained the whole concept of his birthright. He thought that was a bunch of nonsense. That was just a, a demonstration of it. Jacob coveted it, and as a result, Jacob was blessed. And, of course, when, uh, when Esau finds out that he not only got finessed out of the porridge and thus the birthright, but then when the father is going to bless the two of them, he gets... Uh, we uh, should have <laughs> uh, had the song, right? My mother made me do it. That we only, okay. So what was Esau's reaction to Jacob later, the later years? He wanted to kill the guy. I mean, he was upset because he stole the blessing. And that had all kinds of implications, not just spiritual things, but inheritance, double portion. And I mean, it was a, it was a non-trivial uh, situation. So Edom was hostile to Jacob, but Jacob, of course, sent gifts and managed to, 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 to finesse that down. I think we get, that, that was in Genesis 33, roughly, if you want to refresh your memory sometime on that whole thing. But in this case now, the nation Israel, the descendants of Jacob, are hoping to trade upon the ultimate heirship or you know, uh, uh, ancestry that Esau would, or that Edom would let them go through the land. Moses sent messages to, from, uh, from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus saith, thy brother Israel, or in other words, say, thy brother Jacob, see? Thou knowest all the travail that, that, that hath befallen us, and how our fathers went down into Egypt, and have dwelt in Egypt a long time. And the Egyptians vexed us and our fathers. And when we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel, and hath brought us forth out of Egypt. And behold, we are in Kadesh, a city in the uttermost of thy border. Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields, nor through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We shall go by the king's highway. Uh, we will not turn to the right or the left until we have passed thy borders. And the head of the PLO said, I mean, the Edom said unto them, Thou shalt not, thou shalt not pass by me, lest I come out against thee with the sword. The children of Israel said unto him, We will go by the highway. And if I and my cattle drink of thy water, then I will pay for it. And I will only, uh, without doing anything else, go through on my feet. And he said, Thou shalt uh, not go through. Edom came out against him with many people and with a strong hand. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border. Wherefore Israel turned away from him, and the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, journeyed from Kadesh and came to Mount Hor. Incident, they want to get through, they want to take a cut through Edom, and because they can't, they've got to go around. It's a lot longer and it's a mess. 
uh, that burden haunts Edom to this day. The book of Obadiah deals with the judgment of Edom. We won't take the time here to get into all of that. Those of you that are in prophecy interested can look at Obadiah. The whole book of Obadiah is an example of Deuteronomy 2.29 and other passages that deal with um, uh, um, that. There's one small point I'll make here. It's interesting. Verse 16, you caught this maybe. It says, When we cried unto the Lord, he heard our voice, and sent an angel, and hath brought us forth out of Egypt. Sent an angel. Um, from lots of passages, we know that that is not just an ordinary angel. Uh, the best examples, of course, I think, are uh, Joshua 5, where indeed uh, Joshua himself uh, encounters this personage at, and uh, who draws a sword. And Joshua, as a good sentry, gives him a challenge, are you for us or our enemies? And the angel says, uh, take off your shoes, you're on hallowed ground, and, and commands himself to be worshipped. And in a couple of cases, and Joshua's one of them, that's a real tip-off that he's not just an angel because angels will not allow themselves to be worshipped. Daniel and John and several places in Scripture where a prophecy is being given by an angel and the, the recipient falls on his knees to worship the angel. The angel says, See thou do it not. I'm a fellow servant like you are. Angels will not allow them. One angel did allow himself to get worshipped and got in a lot of trouble. Okay? This one encourages himself to be worshipped and says, I am the captain of the Lord's host. Take off thy shoes, you're on hallowed ground. Using the very phrase that Joshua would recount from Moses when Moses was before the burning bush. So he recognized this person who was claiming to be the same person. None other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Joshua would not fight the battle of Jericho. Jesus Christ did. Anyway, that same issue sort of lurks behind the whole um, Passover from Egypt, incidentally. But anyway, so, so much for Edom. Uh, those of you that might be interested can, can use this as a springboard and study uh, Edom, but uh, we got we'll keep moving. Verse twenty three, and the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron in Mount Hor by the border of the land of Edom, saying, Aaron shall be gathered unto his people, for he shall not enter the land which I have given unto the children of Israel, because ye rebelled against my word at the water of Meribah. See, Aaron gets his comeuppance too because of Meribah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up unto Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron shall be gathered unto his people and shall die there. A lot implied here, by the way, the fact that Aaron, when he dies, goes with his people. A lot of theology can start hanging on the whole concept of death and what happens. Aaron's going to be, he's going to be gathered to his people. See, there's a whole... On the one hand, there's a lot of emphasis about death and it's linked to sin. On the other hand... Life after death is clearly very express here. And uh, from here, of course, you can springboard to Luke 16 and the other insights we have as to what happens after, after death. Also interesting, very public. See, Aaron and Eliezer go up. Eliezer comes back in Aaron's garments. The whole nation understands. Very public form of, of uh, having the command and hand it over. Okay. Strip Aaron, uh, strip Aaron of his garments, put them on Eliezer's son, and Aaron shall be gathered unto his people and shall die there. And Moses did as the Lord commanded, and they went up unto the Mount Hor in the sight of the congregation. And Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eliezer's son, and Aaron died there in the top of the mount. And Moses and Eliezer came down from the mount. 
And when all the congregation saw that Aaron was dead, they mourned for Aaron 30 days, even all the house of Israel. Chapter 21. And when King Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the, in the Negev, that's a, a region south of Canaan, therefore called south, but they're not south. Negev is not necessarily south from where they are. It's north of where they are. Don't get confused by your geography there. Treat the word Negev as a proper name, a place name. It happens to mean south because it's named from its position vis-a-vis the promised land. When King Arad and Canaanite who dwelt in the Negev heard that Israel came by the way of the spies. Now, by the way, that is uh, a translational issue, whether it's a proper name or wh- whether that's what the word means. is a whole issue we don't have to get into here. It may or may not have anything to do with the way that the spies went to, to Hebron. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into thy hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. And they utterly destroyed them in their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormah, okay, which means destruction. It's an equivalent, equivalent word. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to encompass the land of Edom. That is, they had to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. In other words, it's a long drag. Okay? I'm going to pause here for a minute. Another incident occurs. But, well, I'll, I'll, never mind. We'll, we'll get that afterwards. There are three nations that are destroyed by Israel prior to Joshua taking over. I want you to remember that. Okay? Arad is the first. Sihon is another. And... Uh, Og is another, right? And we'll come back to that issue. It's a very provocative one. I didn't realize the significance of that, except I had a tour of Israel by the Department of Defense, of Ministry of Defense of Israel, and interestingly enough, a rabbi pointed out something to me that blew me away. Well, since I got into it, I'll start now. <laughs> How many nations did Israel conquer to get the promised land? No, seven in the land, three prior. Ten. And I was amazed, their description of their history, from the point of Judaism, that there were ten nations. These three, plus the seven that are resident in the land when Joshua takes over. So there's three plus seven, or ten total. And I'm always fascinated by the parallel between what happened in Israel then and what's going to happen to the world in Revelation. Ten nations. Three are uprooted, leaving seven. Seven heads and ten horns. You can run with it from there. Okay? Interesting, isn't it? God is fascinating how he deals in patterns. Whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning that you and I might have hope. Now we get into another interesting situation here. A very, very interesting event occurs here. Verse 5, Numbers 21, verse 5. And the people, bear in mind, this, this contingent of verse 4, which says they were very discouraged. They had to go around Edom, so it's a long drag. They're tired. They're upset. And what do they do when they're tired and upset? They murmur, right? <laughs> and the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? That's their theme song. I wonder if they put that on a banner and carried it around. Moses unfair, you know. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loathes this light bread. Big mistake, gang. Murmuring's bad enough. Disparaging angels' food or other labels that God put on his bread. The word manna is their name. It means what's the stuff? What's it? It's sort of analogous to the word you, you we speak of a thim, thingamajig. It's a it's a, a nondescript epithet. Okay, manna was, and and God never called it manna. They called it manna. Well, He calls it manna only once, but it's in reference to the way they spoke to it. So they they make they 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 speak contemptuously of the manna. Big mistake. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. What did they lose? I think 15,000 before they woke up. Anyway, and Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, you get the picture. They're murmuring. Fiery serpents come. Fiery, bright, shiny. The word fiery could, some scholars believe it referred to the, the sting, the pain of the bite. Not only was it fatal, but it also burned. Others feel it was visual, that they were fiery in sense of being, you know, copperheads or copper colored or something. In any case, I'm going to come back to that in a whole other instant here in a minute. But anyway, Let's get the story first. The Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of bronze, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if, the serp- if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of bronze, he lived. And the children of Israel set forward and camped in Oboth, and they journeyed from Oboth, and they camped at some other place I can't pronounce, and in the wilderness which is before Moab, before the sunrising. And from there they moved and camped in the valley of Zered, and there they removed and camped to the other side of Arnon, and the wilderness that cometh out of the borders of the Amorites, for Arnon is the border of Moab, uh, and the Amorites, and on it goes. Now, strange little incident. Because of the murmuring, God sends these serpents. These serpents bite people. People die. They repent, they pray, Moses goes to the Lord, the Lord says, okay, make a brass serpent, put it on a pole, and I presume they put it up on some high hill, because you got a lot, this isn't just a casual group, it's a huge bunch. And that way, in the camp, when someone got bit by a snake, if they didn't look at, take a look, they'd die. But if they looked, visually looked, at this symbol, this standard with this brass serpent, they would live. Strange, isn't it? Now, this is one we don't have to do a lot of guessing about. I might mention a cut. Well, uh, uh, let's first of all turn to John chapter 3. You remember Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. We all know the story for lots of reasons. Remember Nicodemus came at night? Nicodemus was a teacher. Not only a, a, He was a leader. He was a teacher. And Jesus held him accountable to understand that the born-again idea is in Jeremiah. Not, that's not New Testament doctrine. That's Old Testament stuff. He said, didn't you know all these things? Remember the whole, you know, the whole incident of you must be born again. That whole thing occurs in John 3. 
And uh, Nicodemus puzzled. How can the guy be? How can these things be? And verse ten, Jesus answered and said, "Art thou a teacher of Israel? Knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that which we do know, and testify that which we have seen. Ye have received not our witness. For I told you earthly things, and ye believe not. How shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, who is in heaven. Who is he speaking about? Jesus Christ Himself, personally. He's the one." Now, notice what it says in verse 14. Strange remark. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus Christ is identifying himself with that serpent, symbolically at least. Because just as Moses was instructed to raise this brass serpent so that anyone that suffered a bite of the serpent, a real serpent, looking at the brass symbol, would not see death. I mean, would not die from the serpent. Jesus Christ is saying, just as Moses had to do that, so I will have to be lifted up. He means put on a pole. He means a lot more than that. The serpent is a type of what? Sin. Brass is the Levitical material for judgment, because when they had the brazen altar, brass was their material that could hold fire. Fire represented the judgment of God. And because the altar was brass, things that were brass were things that typically had to do with fire, therefore they typically spoke of God's judgment. So when you have a brass serpent, what that says to the Levitical mind is that sin judged. The book of Colossians says that Jesus Christ was made sin. for you. It was flabbergasting me at first to even get used to the idea that a brass serpent could be a symbol of Jesus Christ, because you think brass serpent would be a great symbol for Satan or something, right? But to have a brass serpent, a symbol of Jesus Christ, requires a lot of insight. Because the brass serpent means sin judge, and Jesus Christ was made sin. You and I have no capacity to understand what that means. That God himself who became flesh, who knew no sin, who was perfect, didn't just bear some nails in his hands and some abuse by the Romans. Hey, that's that's the surface stuff. For him to allow himself to be made, a holy God, be made sin for us. You and I do not have any capacity, theologically or emotionally or in any other way, to have any idea what that really means. That's that's a extreme that we don't have but that's anyway, when we look, now we're back here in Numbers. So what's going on here is more than simply God using this as a mechanism to cause Israel to get to minimize the, uh, the uh, harm from these snakes. God sent the snakes in the first place. The snakes are biting, they're dying. Okay, Moses, put up the symbol, and then how are they saved? By faith. There's no possible way a glance at a brass symbol up on top of a hill has any medical effect of a serpent that just bit your ankle with the venom. It's a miracle. By what? By faith. Those that will look and thus appropriate to themselves, the brass serpent, were saved. A couple of other insights that you might find uh, kind of... uh, This is interesting, too, because here's an example that isn't one of Chuck Missler's fabrications or outfit. Jesus Christ himself identifies this as a type of him, as you saw in John 3. 
There's another insight that might, you might find awfully interesting, and it opens up a whole other series of discussions. And that is, the word for fiery serpent in the Hebrew is a seraph. The plural is seraphim. There is a linguistic link, play on words, between the seraphim of Isaiah 6 and the seraph that is a serpent. Okay, so fiery serpent, I believe, means bright, shining thing. And that leads to a whole other study that goes beyond the scope of this little inquiry. And that is, what on earth was going on in Genesis 3? See, you and I don't have, we have no idea what the shining one represents in Genesis 3. If a snake talked to you and I, we'd be a little surprised. Eve was not surprised. What was speaking to her? We don't know. It was a seraph. It was the shining one. And if we have any insight from Isaiah 14, it's a beautiful, lovely, wise, bright counselor. She listened to. Made a big mistake. We only know what he was after the curse. The serpent and sliding on the ground and beating dust. So part of our problem in really getting a perspective of what was going on in Genesis 3 is that we only know the creation post-curse, not pre-curse. And so these idioms of language uh, require some um, insights and some imagination on our part and not visualize you know, some kind of slithering thing hanging on a tree that's whispering in her ear with its hissing sound. Um, um, and, of course, it wasn't an apple, as you... you know, we have to go through all that here. Uh, but the point is, once you begin... To, and there's several words, by the way, for serpent, but the, the word used here is a seraph, which is a close cousin to the seraphim that Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah 6, and that um, uh, Ezekiel calls the cherubim, and that in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 speak of the uh, living ones, these, these um, super beings that uh, guard the holiness of God. And uh, so, so uh, uh, the brazen. Oh, now a couple other things about the brass serpent you might find kind of interesting. I think this is kind of amusing. Most of you know the symbol of the medical profession, the, the U.S. Army Medical Corps, and also physicians is the caduceus, right? It's a staff with two snakes. Do you know that's all due to a mistake? <laughs> the caduceus is the staff of Hermes in the Greco-Roman traditions, who is the messenger of the gods and a symbol of peace and of trade. Okay? It, the staff of Hermes, was, which is the caduceus, was originally a staff with an olive branch end, ending in two shoots that were decorated with ribbons or garlands. As the years went by, the symbol was misinterpreted and the garlands were made two snakes. Okay, with the heads, you know, they also added wings that intended to speak of the speed of Hermes. Hermes was the messenger. He was a symbol of ambassadors. So it had to do with trade and commerce and that sort of thing. Okay, now it turns out what it got confused with by the U.S. Army and whoever else is not the Caduceus, but Escalapius. Now, Escalapius is originally mentioned by Homer in the Iliad. He mentions him as a skillful physician. 
He later gets honored as a hero and worshipped as a god and under the Greco-Roman, you know, traditions. Uh, he is the, um, the, the, uh, the god of healing, the son of Apollo. Zeus, because he was afraid he might make men immortal, slaughters him with a thunderbolt. I don't know what kind of gods get killed by thunderbolts, but anyway, in the, in the Greek mythology, that's the whole I, the, the, the tradition of Aesculapius is interesting because his staff was... A, uh, oh, by the way, he also, uh, the, the cult that, of the worship of, of uh, Aesculapius began in Thessaly and, and later went throughout all Greece. He's pre- he is thought to prescribe his remedies in dreams. Therefore, part of the practice was to sleep in his temples. See, that was uh, interesting. Um, but his staff was a single serpent. Okay. And when they were adopting symbols, they adopted the wrong symbol from the Greek mythology because if they were going to use Aesculapius, they wouldn't use a caduceus. Caduceus is that of trade, not of medicine. Now, if you know doctors, you may think that maybe they did pick the right one. You know, <laughs> But the Aesculapius was a single staff and a single snake. And where did that come from originally, from Numbers 20? Because the the, the background, the Jewish background of the Old Testament went to Alexandria and ultimately became a tradition that also underlay the Greek, this is, see, this is centuries before the whole Greek thing. So these, these the mythology and so forth harbors, in a sense, the roots of the account in Numbers, where the single snake on a pole was a symbol of healing in the, among the Jews. It got adopted by the Greeks in the, the traditions of Aesculapius that got confused with the traditions around the Caduceus. So just as an aside, okay? So whenever you see a doctor's physician's thing on a license plate, you know that he is worshiping the god of trade, not medicine. Okay. So now, uh, uh, now a couple of other things that's also enlightening uh, by the time you get to the days of Hezekiah, bear in mind how we've gone from numbers into the land, and then we've got to David and the kingdom, and then the divided kingdom. We get to Hezekiah. It's a long way from numbers, okay, from the Torah. I quickly can't do the arithmetic, but say a thousand years. This brass serpent is still around, and it's being worshipped as an idol. And Hezekiah gets upset and has it destroyed. You'll find that in 2 Kings 18, for those of you who want to track it down. Which raises interesting, it's interesting how these things are. They, they, they had a very appropriate role in the period of the numbers and, and, and saving them from the, from the serpents. But then as time goes on, it's venerated as a symbol and then evolves into worship. And it's one of those reasons that I get so nervous about things like the Shroud of Turin and such. I understand uh, recent discoveries have discredited it and so forth. That's fine. One or the other point is, the more valid it seems, the more dangerous it is. Once it's discredited and not an issue, then it becomes just an incident of cultural background. It's not material. But um, if they find Noah's Ark and bring a peace back, what's going to happen? You know, Not necessarily spiritually helpful things, quite the contrary. We tend to make fetishes out of them and, and uh, make a mess of things. Okay, let's see if we can finish chapter 21 in the time we have left. We got to about verse 14. Verse 14 harbors a reference that's puzzled scholars for years. Because it talks about how they, there's sort of a summary here where they've encamped various places. 
In verse 14, wherefore it is said uh, in the book of the wars, wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea and in the brooks of Arnon, at the stream of the brooks that goeth down to the dwelling of Ar, lieth at the border of Moab. So the book of the wars of the Lord, you don't think of God fighting wars, do you? But there is a book of the wars of the Lord. It says so. And um, what wars does it include? Well, we know it includes the Red Sea issue. That was a war, a spiritual war. Uh, we can think of some more subsequently, certainly Jericho and so forth. Interesting, interesting reference, I think. But moving on. 15 at the stream, uh, or 16. Uh, and from there they went to beer, and, and it is the well whereof the Lord spake unto Moses, gather the people together, and I will give them water. Then Israel sang this song, Spring up, a well, sing ye unto it. The princes digged the well, and the nobles of the people digged it by the direction of the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matana, and from Matana to uh, Nahalil, and from Nahalil to Bamoth, and from Bamoth in the valley, which is the in the country of Moab, to the top of Pisgah, which looketh toward Jeshimon. Now we're going to get see two more victories here before the end of the chapter. We've had one already earlier, the early part of chapter, Arad. Now we have two more coming. Israel sent messengers to Sion, the king of the Amorites, saying, Let me pass through thy land. We will not turn to the fields or into the vineyards. We will not drink of the waters of the well, but we will go along by the king's highway until we have passed thy borders. And Sion would not permit Israel to pass through his border. But Sion gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and fought against Israel. And Israel smote him with the edge of the sword and possessed his land from Arnak to Jabbok, even unto the children of Ammon. For the border of the children of Ammon was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon and all the villages thereof. And Heshbon was the city of Sion, the king of the Amorites, who fought against the former king of Moab, and taken all his land out of his hand, even unto Arnon. Wherefore they who speak in Proverbs say, Come unto Heshbon, let the city of Sion be built and established. For there is a fire gone out of Heshbon, and a flame from the city of Sion, and it hath consumed Ar of Moab and the lords of the high places of Arnon. Woe to thee, Moab! Thou art undone, O people of Shemosh. Which incidentally is a name for the idol that they worship. It's a equivalent word for Moloch, Baal, and so forth. They're all slight variations of the same Canaanite cult, if you will. He hath given his sons that escaped and his daughters unto captivity unto Sion, the king of the Amorites. We have shot at them. Heshbon is perished even unto Dibon. And we have laid them waste even unto Nophaph, and, uh, which re- <laughs> reacheth unto Medeba. And Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Now, by the way, you see, they're east of the promised land. They've gone around Eden. They're really still south, but also to the east side of the Jordan. And... Um, Moses uh, sent out to spy Jazer, and they took the villages thereof and drove out the Amorites that were there, and they burned and went up by the way of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to the battle of Edrai. And the Lord said unto Moses, Fear him not, for I have delivered him into thy hand and all his people and his land. And thou shalt do to him as thou didst to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. So they smote him and his sons and all his people, until there was none left to him alive, and they possessed his land. So ends chapter 21. Interesting thing, three victories, Arad, Sihon, and Og. 
And what's fascinating, those are all Canaanite, Amorite. Well, some are Amorite, some are others. There's the uh, Arad was Canaanite, which is the term is used denotatively and connotatively. Land of Canaan, collectively, they're all Canaanites, although Canaanites are also a specific tribe within the ten. The Amorites are another. Uh, Jericho is one of the major capitals of the Amorites. Um, and uh, then, of course, we have Bashan, Agat Bashan. But the point is, is that uh, I was fascinated in getting a briefing um, on Israel's claim to the land, but from their point of view, the strict Judaistic point of view, is that there were ten nations they dispossessed to get the land. Three prior to crossing the Jordan, seven afterwards. The book of Joshua deals with Joshua Hoshua crossing the land and and uh, taking on seven nations. And uh, they ultimately aligned themselves under a leader called uh, Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness. And uh, they affiliate against this pretender, against uh, Israel, and uh, uh, they are defeated in the battle of Beth Horon and signs of the sun and the moon and so forth. And the kings who are defeated hide in caves, saying rocks fall on us and so on. And a very interesting model of the book of Revelation. And what does Joshua do before he goes to land? He sends in two witnesses. We call them spies, but there was no G2 they brought back. They just got Rahab saved. Because Rahab is going to end up marrying Solomon, a Gentile convert. Marrying Solomon, their, their son is a guy by the name of Boaz who also takes a Gentile bride by the name of Ruth, becomes the great-grandfather or whatever of David, the king. So it's interesting. interesting. And both uh, um, Ruth and Rahab find their way into the family tree of Jesus Christ by none other than Matthew the Levi. It's not normal to put women in a, gene- in a Jewish genealogy, but there are four women in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and Rahab and Ruth being two of them. And... Uh, Bathsheba, and uh, who's the other one? Tamar, thank you. Yes, good for you. Tamar and uh, Bathsheba being the other. And it, as someone pointed out, Ruth's the only one with a clean reputation, I guess. <laughs> Three out of four, eh? pretty rough. Um, but interesting. So, uh, But the whole, the whole point of uh, Joshua fighting the Battle of Jericho, as you know, but just to remind you in case you're curious and want to do your own digging, you'll find that the study of the book of Joshua will become a model of the book of Revelation. Just as Jehoshua took the nation Israel into the land that was committed to them and dispossessed the usurpers, so likewise Jesus Christ is going to take uh, charge of that which he paid for, namely the planet Earth, with his people and dispossess the uh, planet of its usurper who is enthroned there now, namely Satan. And what the book of Revelation is all about is that issue, and it's foreshadowed in its entirety by the book of Joshua. Just as in the Old Testament we find, like in the book of Numbers with the brazen serpent, we have an anticipation between the brazen serpent and the red heifer. You have these bizarre kind of symbols that lay out for us the uh, purpose, the mission, the destiny, the commitment, the accomplishments of none other than Jesus Christ in your behalf and mine. The Old Testament, the, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed. And the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. So these things have meaning. You can't get the full meaning of the brazen serpent or the red heifer uh, if you finish at Malachi. You have to go from Matthew to Revelation to put it all together. So it's one book, 66 books written by 40 authors that have one theme, one message, one structure, one architect of every word, every number, every place name, every detail. Let's stand for a word of prayer. Kind of fun stuff in a way. And yet, what does it really mean for you and I?
It means a lot of things. It means God has gone through a lot of trouble to lay out a plan of redemption for you and I. He also has, in his way of communicating with his people, made it very clear that he, he, he intends to be taken seriously. He intends to be understood. And the same God that told Moses to raise the serpent in the wilderness is the God that raised Jesus Christ on the cross for you and I. So God hasn't changed. And so as we go through the Old Testament, and on the one hand we see these quaint rules and details, and, we, and I don't misunderstand me, I'm not suggesting we should be under the law, God forbid. But on the other hand, we should understand how he thinks and how he acts and what he expects. And he expects to be taken seriously. He expects us to, to do our homework, to understand how it is that he will be worshipped. What he expects of you and I. Good news is, is that he's gone through an enormous amount of trouble on our behalf. To Israel, he provided manna. He provided water. For you and I, he's provided much more. You and I have the unusual situation that we don't have to go through an earthly high priest. We go through Jesus Christ. We have direct access for whatever our needs are, which go far beyond manna and water and such. He's alive and real and cares. He's gone through incredible uh, lengths so that you and I might have life and have life abundantly. Let's bar our hearts. Father, we praise you for who you are. We thank you, Father, that you've gone to such lengths on our behalf. We thank you, Father, that you've gone to such detail in revealing yourself to us. We would ask you, Father, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, to increase in us an appetite for the things of you. Amen.